welcome to Social Work Spotlight, where I showcase different areas of the profession each episode. I'm your host, Yasmeen McKee-Wright, and today's guest is Paul. Paul has worked as a social worker for 32 years. He currently works as the social work educator at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. The main focus of his practice has been in the New South Wales public health system, working as a clinician and a team leader in mental health, sexual health and HIV settings, and now in hospital social work. He has also worked as a couple and family therapist in private practice and for Relationships Australia, and also as a lecturer at the Australian Catholic University. Paul's current role combines clinical practice, leadership and supervision, education and research. Paul has held voluntary leadership roles for the Australian Association of Social Workers, New South Wales Branch, the National Mental Health Committee, and on the Steering Committee of the Australian College of Social Work. Join me on this journey as Paul talks me through his variety of interesting roles that have led him to this point in his career and his inspiring and passionate view of the world and his place in it. Thank you so, so much for being part of this. I'm so grateful for your time and really excited to get to chat with you about your experience as a social worker. Welcome. It's my pleasure. Yeah. I was hoping perhaps you could start by talking about your beginnings in social work, what you studied and how you came about it. Yeah. Well, I did nursing when I first left school and I met, um, in my last few years of nursing, I met some other student social workers and, um, and graduate social workers, left-wing, through my left-wing connections. Mm. Um, I was involved in nurses' union politics, but far left um, a reform group. It was called the Nurses' Reform Group. Okay. So I met these great people. Yeah. And um, and that made me decide to do social work. They inspired me to do social work, and the woman who did inspire me, um, I still she's still around. Um, she's a professor of social work in a university. Uh, but she's been in academia for the last 10 or 15 years. And mm-hmm. She was in uh, domestic violence uh, at a policy level and clinical event at a policy level. And she, she mm. was a very good influence way back then. And yeah. um, so I studied social work at Sydney University. Mm-hmm. I lived in a big share household in Newtown. Yeah. And, um, I had the best time. It was. That's probably part of your social work study, your education. That's right. Yes, um, it was a random group of people. Um, we going to bands, studying till ten o'clock, and then going to bands. Um, yeah. Working hard, having it was it was great fun. Yep. And did you work as a nurse? Or? I did just on the weekends, and okay. so I had enough money to run a car, for example. Mm. Oh, but then... That would have been a luxury in the student world. Yeah, but then very crappy cars that if they fell apart, I'd just sort of push them into a, <laughs> um, <laughs> an abandoned... <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, so... Okay, so you went back and you studied social work yeah. part-time? Full-time, Full-time, yeah, while yeah. you were still working as a nurse? Just I was working part-time as a nurse and a bit more in the holidays, mm. build up a bit of money and... Wow. Um, and did you have an aha moment where you thought, okay, I'm glad I made this shift, I'm, I'm in the right place? Not, um, 
The first uh, the first year doing art subjects, I was just enthralled with one social, or maybe psychology or something. I, I was just thrilled with, mm. you know, I was doing English literature, uh, late modern European history, and the psychology for social workers. Uh-huh. Um, or no, psychology one, and and government. Yeah. And I was just thrilled. And then the second year, a bit more specific social work subjects, and and I think I really like this because they they sort of a social justice. Uh, those those things they were how to sort of be in practice how, giving a language for understanding and describing and mm. being involved in social action understanding social problems and being involved in social action all those sorts of things and then in the third year I was did really well in the third year I got uh, three two distinctions and a credit yeah and that was really I think this I really love this but then in the third end of the third year I also met um, my first boyfriend mm-hmm. and um, that was that, so my marks went down in fourth year <laughs> you got derailed. <laughs> I got derailed I got two credits and a pass uh, which is good enough but um, I was too busy we were having a, a great time yeah. and I was sort of involved in a bit of gay liberation politics as well. There was all the um, law reform and age of law reform was only just coming through in the mid 80s and decriminalization of Mm. of gay stuff. uh, Then there was the inconsistent age of consent, 16 for boys, 18 for girls, which I didn't really care about personally because I wasn't interested in but it just was a social justice thing. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that. but the uni days were great. You know, I loved it. I just really, it felt quite different. The rest of the, I felt apart from the university people. Also, I was a bit older than mm-hmm. the people in my course. Yeah. And then, and the people generally, um, I was, I hadn't sort of been around such large groups of um, middle-class mm. people before <laughs> yeah, and beautiful private school middle-class people <laughs> and it was a bit I felt like a really a bit on the outer I was a bit of a sort of hippie and um, yeah. uh, hippie slash surfy gay sort of it mm. was um, and lefty so it, so I sort of felt a bit on the outer and um, Sounds like it provided a good political foundation, though. But that was fantastic, yeah, yeah. And what were your university placements? Um, I did three. Mm-hmm. Um, one was a placement evaluating a parent drug education program. Yeah. For, but for really young, yeah, for young primary school parents or something. It was, a, mm. it was with. Cedar Center for Education and Drugs and Alcohol, but it was a sort of offshoot of them, and okay. based at Roselle Hospital, but not in, um, but not in the not just on that big campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that was that was the first one. That was sort of pretty hard work. Very weird, like going down into going to places like Kirawee 
while the while the my supervisors the people but delivering delivering the workshops to mm -hmm. to people and um, to parents about yeah. how to talk about drugs with their primary school age children and okay. it wasn't just I don't know I did it but <laughs> I don't think I and I was meant to be evaluating the, helping to evaluate um, so that was, then I did a placement at St George Hospital in the Oncology Ward uh -huh. and then I did a placement at Parramatta Sexual Health Centre mm -hmm. in the, um, yeah, and that was in 87, that was when HIV was big and um, scary and so that was, that was really full on, yeah. yeah. There was no treatments at that time. and So I guess you would have felt quite powerless as a social worker to really pull together resources, yeah. given the stigma as well. The stigma, all of that stigma, terror. Um, you t talk about safe sex with people. Um, <clears throat> but it was a stigma, it was a stigma thing. And this was in the, um, in Western Sydney as well, the sort of more working class, um, men who have sex with men and yeah. Uh, yeah there were groups we, we and there was all this, this people being rejected by their families and all of these sorts of um, those horrific stories that you would hear and or people discovering their son was gay um, when he went into hospital for the first time with pneumonia or something like that mm. it was even though we were more sort of outpatient. Uh, but suddenly you're thrown under the microscope. Yeah, yeah, so that was all, that was, it was intense. It was a bit, it was quite intense when I think back about on it. And, yeah. and I, well, I was acting as, um, by the end of the placement, as you would expect, acting, you know, work, practicing independently, taking histories, counseling, mm -hmm. giving results. Uh, not positive results, but mm -hmm. giving results and talk, you know, goes all the pre and post test counselling. Yeah. Uh, and did that shape what you then wanted to do as a role outside did, of uni? Yeah, it did. Um, and I went for a job at, oh, that's right. I had to do a slightly longer placement because the St George one, I finished a bit early. And there was... Um, a guy who was at uni, there was a job come, came up there and this guy turned up at, you know, he got the job and I was orienting him. I was still finishing my placement well into December and this guy had got this job and I thought, oh, okay. There was another job I went for at St. Vincent's Hospital mm -hmm. on, on Ward 17 and I didn't even get an interview. I don't think it was an interview. I came... They offered me to come and talk about the role, and two women, but they spent like an hour and a half talking me out of the job, really. Oh, wow. Yeah, just, but, you know, it's, it's really tough, it's really hard, um, you're too young, you're, you, you're too young to do this, that sort of thing. And How did you find that? You would have been uh, so enthusiastic and excited to I, work I would have space. thought, well, especially when people three or four years younger than me like that that colleague um he was a young gay man he got he got this position at, at mm. Parramatta but in the end I thought oh well all right if that's if that's because they, they basically wouldn't let me leave until I said I wasn't going to go for it that's how I record because wow. it went on for the conversation went on for such a long time huh. um how would you know t how would you cope with 
death and dying, what are your supports? And um, and do you think that was purely age? Um, I, and I, I don't know, it was intense, I think, at St Vincent's in 1988, mm-hmm. and it was like the epicentre in Sydney, and I think people were being treated at other hospitals, but... And she just thought you were too young? The, the, um, just, and not, exper- not experienced enough. I was a new grad, you know, mm. just a new grad. Um, so where did you... Where did you find your feet? Where was your first so job? So my first job ended up being Centrelink. Okay. <laughs> and I was slumming, slummoxed around there for a while. Just It was good, you know. I Assessments, at, and that was at Parramatta. And then I got jobs in the city, and mm. I was there for three or four years. I learned a bit about, you know, about systems, and mm. it wasn't my true love. Um, yeah. But it was that was about till 1990 or 91 and then I got a job at um, in central Sydney at, with when the new crisis teams were being um, launched in Redfern, Glebe and Marrickville. Okay. It was a new model of care. They'd started it in Burwood a couple of years before but it was um, it was co- coinciding with the closure of, hosp- of all the big hospitals you know the Richmond report and mm. bringing um, people want to be cared for in the community and um, it was a big shift you know um, because it was an after-hour service you could offer care and supervision of people into the evenings mm-hmm. and do a set prevent hospitalizations that's what we were trying to do and also um, length decrease the length of stay that was mm-hmm. they were the goals and but using your relationship because you would if you could get them out of a hospital you could give them intensive community support until they're well enough and then maybe hand them over to the to the regular care team I don't know what it was called back then the case management team or something and so it was a step a separate team but when they were stabilized they could be someone that might be just getting twice weekly visits but we wouldn't we would do more intensive support so. okay yeah and that was great I loved that yeah yeah I felt really great sense of belonging and really interesting work and learning about counselling and and then we amalgamated with Glebe and so so you know health always changes mm-hmm. it always change yeah we were we were based in Glebe and I just remember that so much of the job was spent in the car like just because mm. travelling from Glebe we still sort of kept people that we knew over in Redfern Alexandria wherever the boundary was um but it felt like you were just driving all the time and right. peak hour traffic crossing Parramatta Road. Um, so I was there for about three years. And then I got a job at 2010, a few streets away, still in Glebe. Yeah. And um, that was as a senior youth worker. Mm-hmm. And 2010 then was a, a collective. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the formal board, board of management. And it was a explicitly a collective okay uh, where and is it still run that way no no that because it was unworkable if uh, it only worked if people got on okay <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a, it was quite outdated I don't think there's many organizations even back then in the whatever the early 90s I don't think there was many organizations with that sort of structure that mm where the workers and the board, everyone had, because there was still a board or a management committee, everyone had equal um, 
equal sort of standing mm. and whereas you know the board would usually um, but there would be a manager <laughs> accountable to the board and then but we had a collective and mm. it was a structure that funding body bodies wouldn't um, wouldn't and it turned out they didn't ex because they, they brought in changes and um, a more hierarchical they brought in managers and mm -hmm. I was fine with that you know um, but then it, it kept it kept on evolving and and that was good experience too just you know it was try sort of like we had a really good supervisor an external supervisor who helped us to sort of you know helping to give a sense of safe harbor relationships a sense mm -hmm. of a safe harbor relationship but safety like boundaries and explicit um, but giving them a bit of a chance to act out if they wanted to or just to sort of to heal to um so it was a sort of quite nurturing family like but that mm -hmm. didn't fit with with a sort of extended lens of study yeah <laughs> that didn't really fit with um again with funding models which is you get someone stabilized off the street move them into from supported to semi-supported to independent mm -hmm. and living and let the next slot in you know um, yeah and so it wasn't probably a great use, even though we gave us a few cohorts, you know, lovely experiences of, you know, a, a family life. But it was it was a nice sort of family feel. And mm. but then we'd leave at eleven or our evening shift, and they were unsupervised until we came back at eight o'clock in the morning. And mm -hmm. I think they got up to a bit of mischief. Right. Um, and that you that's. Yeah, not safe. You know, the office was broken into. There, there mm. were some wild, wild things. There were sex work from there, and various people come back to stay and just make sure they're out of there. And the <laughs> yeah, because there were quite some quite vulnerable people, um, traumatized young people, and to have really drug crazed, you know, young women quite traumatized, to have, you know, twenty four year old boys partying and bringing other people back for sex paid or you know mm. it's it was not a safe environment so they changed it to sleepovers and mm -hmm. curfews and all of that and then I got a job at Kirkton Road recognizing the social work role a bit more interest in counseling mm. um, teamwork public health you know integrating what I wanted to do into public health um, a primary health care you know a model of care sort of thing mm -hmm. and and what's the purpose of Kirkton Road back then, what it is now? It is, yeah. Um, primary health care for all, but especially for the mar those marginalised groups, mm. uh, sex workers, injecting drug users, homeless youth. and So a safe space. A safe space, um, harm reduction methodology. And, and because I had my nursing, the health sort of knowledge, mm. I really got, I got it. I really got the, um, the model and the sort of the impl implications of social factors, psychosocial factors on health mm. and so it made sense to me and I, you know, I flourished there really and yeah. yeah. How did you end up at ACU? Oh, well there's still a few more things that happened. <laughs> so I was only, I was there for five years. Okay. Um, I met Michael while I was there. Oh. <laughs> So it's 22 years ago I left, uh -huh. um, and so my last two years I was acting as the counselling unit manager, but I never seemed to be able to, I went for it a couple of times and never quite got it, and mm. um, 
so I was becoming a bit more career focused. This is in my mid thirties, but I probably was ready for um, to move on. It was pretty intense work, um, mm. working with so many people. Everybody is actively, actively in in use, and mm. um, it's it's quite a sort of um, the environment is a bit it's a bit wild, and mm-hmm. some behaviours were mirrored in parts of the style. <laughs> But still, great quality of care, but I, I was personally just ready, uh, you know, shift work, I don't know, there's a couple of things happened. Once a guy pulled a knife out, did not to stab me, but to say, this is what I'm doing to people who give me the shits. Mm. And I was just out on the street with him talking, and, um, and I sort of vaguely knew him, but that chilled me. And then another mm. time, someone shot some things at the windows of the bus. Okay. And, so you became aware of your vulnerability in yeah, that case. Yeah, yeah. So I got a job as a team leader at St George Sexual Health Centre. Not that far away, <laughs> but it wasn't, they weren't my people. Yeah. <laughs> and there wasn't a great sense of belonging. And But I was there for three years or so. And then the job as a senior counsellor at Sydney Sexual Health came up. Mm-hmm. And it was slightly more money. It was like a level four. Yep. and And also you know, in the city and mm. so just a bus ride, a, a train ride and then a walk home or, you know, just that mm. Michael was working in the city at that time and mm-hmm. I went there and had a very good time. It was really lovely, uh, interesting work. And, and I was I had a bigger team to lead as well. So I was building my leadership skills. Um, yeah. I was on the management committee of, uh, of the center and but then I, there was still lots of money for training uh, around at that time. Mm. And so I began my um, master's. That's right, because I also did my master's in couple and family therapy mm. in between St. George. Uh, started at St. George and finished at Sydney Sexual Health. And, okay. But the first few modules were paid for by study grants. Um, mm. And then I got credit for, what I, for, the, for the master's degree um, in the social work school. Mm. Uh, that was uh, the masters was fantastic that really shaped my um my lens my confidence in myself and the possibilities Mm -hmm. as well that were inherent in therapeutic work you know systematic work based on theory and um research and polished um skills Uh, one of the benefits of this program was a real skills component, live supervision, where you working with actual clients, where you get supported through a session and give given feedback, live supervision, you know, um, mm-hmm. it was amazing. I know in social work there seems to be a disconnect between academia or research and practice. Yeah. When I think that perception should be shifting, it should be informing each other. And, That's right. And it's, we don't do one without the other. No. Really. I, well, I came. I feel like I almost came late to it because I was whatever. Well, I was probably ten years, a bit over ten years out. It was the right time, and um, but that's given me such. I feel so much stronger in my, you know, that the importance of theory and to get taken more seriously, take yourself seriously. What you can you can offer things to patients in a greater depth, go deeper with them. So that was all happening. Then I went on a weeks long social qualitative research course down mm-hmm. in Melbourne at a Archers, Australian Centre for Research in Culture, Health and S- Society or 
sex, health and society. Somewhere sex is in there, sexuality is <laughs> in there, yeah. and culture. And that course was meant to help you do a research proposal, and mm. my research proposal ended up being how do gay men manage monogamy and non-monogamy in their committed relationships, because mm. that was a th an issue coming up in my practice at, okay. at Sydney Sexual Health. And and they said, this is a great idea. You've, you've really articulated, why don't you see if you can take it further? So I contacted the people who'd, super, who'd I'd worked with in the master's program, because I thought it could enhance my practice. And um, they accepted me for a research degree. Started with Master of Research, but then upgraded to a PhD. And then I did my PhD. Uh, <laughs> and you taught at university as I well? I did, yeah. Tutoring, some lectures, marking. And I worked part-time as a child and family counsellor at Relationships Australia. Okay. Yeah. You've had so much experience in yeah. very varied It is places. varied, isn't it? There's and it sounds as though you just stumbled upon these places by accident, but yeah. you managed to pick a little bit from each place yeah. that you've worked to develop your own style of practice and right. develop your own way of working yeah. and and your perception of what it is that social workers can do and That's do do. It. And yeah. then you ended up coming back into clinical. That's right. Yeah. Um, I did. I wasn't sure I wanted to. And my first job past the degree was three days a week in the mental health team at Children's Hospital, mm. Sydney Children's Hospital. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I kept my private practice going. Okay. And I kept some teaching going. How was it working with kids? I didn't really, like, I was a bit frightened of <laughs> Well, the main ones that we worked with were um, young women. It was, mm. it was a um, eating disorders program. Oh, wow. And, and then a few other people hospitalized but mainly were people the, the people who needed inpatient treatment because it was a non-gazetted unit so it was an open ward mm -hmm. um, those people were specialed and um but so it wasn't it wasn't one-on-one -on -one nursing yeah, yeah. It, but it was it wasn't a gazetted locked locked facility and mm. at that time it has since become that okay. um, so we could only take certain people um and a lot of them were yeah, young women, children um, with eating disorders, mm -hmm. and uh, and some conversion conversion illnesses, mm -hmm. and but not no major sort of behavioural things or no sort of seventeen year old boys out of off their chops on you know speed or steroid psychosis. Mm. We wouldn't that you could handle. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't have any. They weren't. Uh, I don't know where they went, but um, yeah. they. Because the, because it was also it was called the adolescent ward, and so there was other um, older children with you know complex fractures and mm -hmm. um, other medical issues, non-cancer. There were still the cancer wards. And, mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of child protection stuff sounds. There like was child protection. There was a lot of family work. So I did. I really loved the family work, um, mm -hmm. helping the families deal with the crisis of. Of diagnosis and mm -hmm. the grief at this is not the future I envisage for my beautiful my beautiful yeah. daughter. The illness has made her become uh, a stranger, mm. a monstrous, a terrifying stranger. And wow. our model was the Maudsley model, um, evidence-based family 
mostly family-based treatment of anorexia and mm. it involved basically helping to support the parents to insist their children eat. Mm. Once they got past the got to a healthy enough weight that they are not in danger of dying mm. but they still need support to to eat um, because often the children would just the patients would do what they needed to do to get out of hospital and then mm. resume the behaviors at home and did you uh, get a lot of bounce back yep yep um, frequent flyers and yeah. Um, Rob, it also felt like we were asking them to do the impossible, uh, but it is possible mm. because we would use really heightened language like, your child will die without you, you're the only ones who can do it, the illness will take over and she will die unless you um, force her to, it was really, we deliberately chose really heightened language, that was what the model called on us to do, um, right. you're not a baby. You're a, you're a 13 year old young woman and you are going to eat this meal that I've prepared for you. Yeah. And it was called Going Broken Record and it, it did work. It did work, um, but it was very hard. Was that a specific social work model? Um, Social work was involved in it. Mm. Psychiatry, it's a it's a multidisciplinary model, but social work were involved in it, mm. um, especially the family therapy side of things. And in Australia, the people who were mainly dealing with was a psychologist and a social worker. But this, but it was evidence based, and it was it was the because it it did work. It did it mm. did work eventually. Um, I feel like that sort of work you just need to have a team around yeah. you. Yeah, you, you had to have a team around you. Mm. Yeah, you might be the primary therapist, um, but you had to have a team around the paediatrician, the dietitian, mm. um, the psychiatrist. Yeah. So it was amazing. That's interesting. But it's all I remember it so vividly. Um, mm. And what's what's your current role like? My current role is. It's interesting when you said you've done a bit of everything because now I'm doing a bit of everything. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so doing this a bit is of kind everything. of your your career trajectory has yeah. led you to this point. It yeah, sounds like I'm an all rounder, and which I can manage projects. A skilled clinical supervisor. Mm -hmm. I'm a student educator. I'm a team leader, mm. and I am a highly skilled clinician. Did I say research? And a research, <laughs> and I can read. I can. I can write and um, and research, and I can speak in large groups. And yeah, I know that there would never be a typical day for you, but what what's yeah. a common day like for you? A common day, again, it's probably a mixed bag mm. of um, the first thing to do is to make sure my team is to see what what the live land is clinically. So the, the mm. team leader takes team leadership duties take priority, and mm -hmm. so. If it's say a Wednesday is a typical day, and who needs help? Um, on an ideal day, everyone's present. Mm -hmm. um, there's no sort of urgent guardianships or something. I might have one or two cases that I'm following through, and I can keep. I can do a, a sort of light clinical load um, because I usually will schedule a few other things in my day, like mm -hmm. a supervision, um, or a working party. Um, Student work, yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I, I 
put a few of those things in. Um, How do you manage your time when you know that you've dedicated some time to supervising another clinician, yeah. but other things come up? Yeah. I just have to sort of... This morning it came up. Um, I was working with a guy. He has to go be discharged. He's a homeless man, multiple stabbing, drug and alcohol, um, mm. been and out of prison. But I... He'd been a bit... I'd had him eating out of my hand, purring like a kitten, mm-hmm. and accepting he was going to go and I was going to help him get on to Link to Home. And and I got delayed and then I... He said, I'll let you sleep and then I'll come back. I got delayed and then I was meant to be in 11.30 and so I I looked in the window, he's still sleeping, and I thought, I won't ca- I said, cancel supervision and do this work or or just let him sleep. So I said to the nurse, I'm onto this guy. If he does wake up, tell him I'll be back in an hour. Mm-hmm. And and I did the supervision and I'm really glad I did. And then I just sort of get into the zone and it probably takes me a while to sort of be totally present, but they mm-hmm. wouldn't know that. But I just know that my thinking, it's a different sort of thinking that you're doing and reflecting and... Do you find it exhausting switching? like that? Um, yes. <laughs> I'm sort of, because the clinical work is, I'm a, up and down the stairs. Um, it's good, so, but some things I can just sort of turn off and say, okay, I've linked these two people. I'm going to listen to what they say because I need to be, but I don't have to do anything. Mm. So I sort of just standing there listening while the NDIS person does her spiel and everyone, and I just go, present, but I can also learn <laughs> I'm looking out, looking out the window, I think, oh, gee, I love that view. <laughs> so, so I could sort of zone out a bit, and um, but they wouldn't know that I'm, I'm yeah. just sort of listening, but I've turned down the dial a bit. and You're taking in what you need to. Yeah, and um, sort of detaching from the story a bit, um, knowing that I, I've, I can't solve this gigantic complex problem, but I've helped with the question she had. Um, so... Ideally, it's I've do I've got a few of my responsibilities. An ideal day would be to factor in some research time, and so okay, I'm going to start. I've got this a research project, mm-hmm. and I'm going to I'm going to spend two hours on the on the research on the ethics application. Okay, that would be that the research gets bumped t- to the bottom not the priority Um, yeah you talked about in your other roles the issue sometimes it's an issue sometimes not of resources especially in social work they can be quite scarce and it's difficult to justify what you're doing but how do you find that in a hospital setting yeah it's about priorities I guess Um, Mm. and I am a resource and I have to sort of negotiate how I spread myself, I guess, and it's a contested area because my team would want me would like me full time in the team. Mm. The other clinical staff would love me to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. My boss wants me to be doing certain things. Um, the director wants me to be doing certain things. I've got my own interests, um, so. I guess you've also got capacity to provide education to the clinicians yeah. and to the students. So yeah. that's an incredible resource that otherwise they'd have to go externally. That's for. right, yeah. But as the as my understanding of the existential world 
of psychotherapy opens up and how that mm. how how that's shaping my practice. I'm going to do presentations on that. People have asked for more couple and family work, mm. but mm. each of those will require me saying no to something else and mm. yeah, no to something else. Do you think that's your biggest challenge in that role is knowing that you could do so many things but just being one person? Yeah, it's it is hard to how to get the balance right and what the what that balance looks like and mm. for example now with the health crisis uh, it's clear because everything else is being put put to the side, you know, mm. non-essential gatherings, non-essential activities. Right. There's a workshop I was going to run next week, which has been cancelled. So, I would have should have I would have been spending this week, um, probably some time over the weekend, getting that ready. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been removed. Um, there's new students who. They're not allowed to start. Um, so that's a university. No, it's thing. a hospital saying we're, we're limiting non-essential con- people coming on campus. Wow. Yeah. And. Oh, I, so I guess they would find an alternative placement, but a hospital is such a come, wonderful I'm place to learn. I'm hoping it doesn't learn. come to that. Um, oh, what a shame. I'm hoping like this will all change in a month or so, and they start a month later or something. Okay. That's um, because it has big implications um, and but if it keeps on going that's you know because I'm sure other government departments they've got to have their sort of um, I guess ours because we we are a reservoir of vulnerable people like um, aged people and whereas you know you can go into people's homes and and I guess there's that media implication of have we let something happen yeah and they're very conscious of that. So, but also non-essential travel is being limited. So, since I've been back, they've been inviting me into this fund, that, mm-hmm. that Inclusive Health Innovation Fund, and they're doing things, large amounts of money that our organisation holds, to focus on margin programs and care of innovative programs and care of the most marginalised people. Um, mental health, homelessness, drug and alcohol, refugees, Aboriginal people. Um, and where does that money come from? Who contributes to that? The organisation decides to, you know, put it aside. And yeah. sounds like an enormous amount of money, but mm. in the whole scheme of things, it's it's not that much. Um, yeah. In local health districts, St Vincent's Health is much smaller. Um, mm-hmm. But they, that's an organisational priority to, for them to, it's, it's, the money is connected to the mission, mm. the, the group, that part of the leadership, and, um, but it's got researchers and clinicians and, and they're inviting people like me into it. Um, so that could be quite rich. That's, but there was, and there was going to be a forum where that in Melbourne to, to look at all the, the latest projects and probably to, to meet people, you know, like-minded, that's been cancelled. Oh, and that was my. It's not often that you get in in our public hospital work to get um, you know handpicked to be flown somewhere. Um, oh. Anyway, that will happen, but that's been cancelled. Just as well. when is the question? Yeah. So. What's your favourite part about your current role? Uh, there's a few different. The, the most favourite is the smile on a patient, the connection that I make with somebody, an authentic connection 
where they feel cared for and I can see it in their face or in the way they relax or um, uh, in the way they soften or cry or um, and I think I've touched that person and so creating warmth and connection in a very sterile environment yeah and kindness and, and love create as a loving connection and it's only since I've been back the back at St Vincent's after my break that I've been ca calling it a, a loving connection you know I want to give this person this family an experience of being loved and mm. and I said that in supervision and my supervisor was quite curious and as to where that comes from I said because you know it was a connection you could relate to what this family wanted to do this and I thought why not you know why not give somebody that experience that for it doesn't happen with everybody but mm. um, what do you think's changed to change that perception of how you work probably confidence and being less not afraid of death or less of less afraid of death myself mm. I'm thinking of the sort of the um, a couple of the ones where it's been a family of helping a family at end of life and not being afraid when death is in the room um, even if it hasn't actually happened but it's mm. it's it's in the corners sure. <laughs> it's, the um, uh, it's it's there um, and it's to be authentic and real and to show emotion not to let it take over but to um, to not be ashamed if my voice quavers or if I feel that sort of that my breath is going away, but then remembering to breathe as mm -hmm. well. You know, these are all all the other non-social work training I've done in <laughs> mindfulness and, and mindfulness and, and breath reflection. and connection and stuff. Um, Self awareness. Yeah. So it's those moments of connection, I think, that mm. um, and giving the person experience of being heard and cared for and loved and. That's probably, that is, yep, that is the main mm. one, yeah. And given what you were saying before about your other roles and how much travelling you had to do, it must yeah. be really nice just being able to walk to and from work if you want to, if yeah. the weather's good. I never walk to work because I'm such a sweaty, <laughs> a, sweat, a sweaty Betty. <laughs> but I, but the walk home is, well, oh, I should maybe get on, the, I don't want to be late. And then I thought, oh, I'm just walking to bus week. I think we're going to keep on going. Yeah. <laughs> I was just... And I think, these are the days that I love. And, and it is, I, I let go, I can feel myself letting go, and I'm walking through, through the world. Um, it puts things in perspective. There's the hospital, and then, then I'm in mm. home. And is that how you care for yourself, or do you see self-care coming in different ways? I'm conscious of exercise. Is You know, this is... Um, I did actually pack my... Um, gym gear this morning um, or last night because mm -hmm. um, I haven't been because the lift has been out I haven't been doing any sort of I've just been walking home and climbing the stairs and, yeah. and I thought I really have got to get back into a bit more sort of because it's you know just that extra bit of exercise um, like a bit of cardio and, mm -hmm. and so I did it on Tuesday and I thought Tuesdays and Thursdays normally mm -hmm. I do mornings and then come home and then go back to, but I don't want to do that many stair, <laughs> stair climbs. Yeah. Um, so that, that is exercise, but I am conscious of this is a time to let go, to look around me, 
to be conscious of people, to let people pass if they're rushing or, you know, to get out of people's way. I just, um, to look at people, to let myself be looked at, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you also have a lot of interests outside of work. I do, yes. The piano, mm. that's the other thing I love to rush home to. And you sing? I haven't been singing a lot because the piano's taken over. Okay. Yeah. Um, formal study of the piano and um, I passed my third grade exam um, late last year and that was the first exam I did (laughs) and now I'm I just love it it's I play at work Mm -hmm. um, not in the the mezzanine piano um, but there's another piano. Is that a little intimidating at this point? That's a bit too much (laughs) I do if there's no one around, but yeah. I also... That kind of draws a crowd, though. It does, and you've got, to, you've got to have your music. I need to have my music. I can't just play many things from memory. Mm. Um, or I can only play a few bars of things from memory. Um, yeah. Our, our life here, you know, that's, um, that's all part of self-care, that's, mm-hmm. you know, looking after this relationship, and mm-hmm. it's a priority, um, And you and Michael travel quite a bit. We do travel, yeah. Um, We've discovered walking as a form of, you know, hiking, Mm. going on hikes instead of staying in cities in Europe or um, saying we're going on a walking tour, like walking in Cornwall or walking Mm. in Slovenia or New Zealand. This is now the rather than staying in a hotel and going to museums and restaurants. We'll still do a bit of that, but walking is now... Not mountain climbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Easy to moderate and, you know, not dangerous at high altitude, but um, walking, um, being in the world and in nature, that's, that's now... Um, and we're different. Michael's not as fit as me, so he often... I walk a bit ahead... Then I sit down and he arrives. <laughs> and then I often get up and he says, Wait, I've got a rest now. Yeah. Um, I don't do enough yoga. I've got mats strategically placed around the. <laughs> to try to prompt you. <laughs> Just remind you that you need to do something. And I've got apps and, you know. Um, Best intentions. Yeah, but I will this week. Um, just. You can f- feel it. And it's. Yeah, for the. Um, for posture and mm. um, and and I think study is um, like the existential that start it's mm. finding new ways to think about the work and myself in the work and yeah tell me about your new project it's studying it's um, the center for existential practice mm-hmm. and it's in Woolloomooloo and th- I went and I've been doing a bit of reading and then I thought oh look I want to take this a bit further you remember the prize you won? Um, that, I do. That, um, well, that I won as well um, a few years later, obviously. Um, I used it that. It was a research prize. The research prize. I used um, that money to, for, my, for a, a two-day workshop, an overview of existential work, and then stage one of this three, um, uh, of, of a sort of certificate in existential practice. And I've just finished level two. Um, mm. Um, but it was good, you know, that, that paid for the first, um, and I like it, I, it's, it's starting to make sense. I had struggled for a while, but it's now sort of starting to make sense as mm-hmm. 
um, a form of inquiry, not trying to heal people, but to understand their their worldview and mm-hmm. um, and how that worldview affects the way they live and how do they want to live? You know, what do they want from life and and do you see that directly impacting your work now, or is it something that you might then? It's gradually creeping in, and yeah. I also want to bring it into my supervision practice because that's mm-hmm. where I'm doing my most sort of one-to-one stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, I've got a book on existential supervision as well, which I'll get to at some point, mm-hmm. um, because. I don't do a lot of ongoing counselling, but a lot of it is systems making things happen. But my supervision practice is with people over time and deepening relationships. So, and this can, this fits perfectly with that. And and I've started to listen for some of the themes about you know anxiety and fi- life's finite quality and loneliness, isolation, essential loneliness, responsibility, freedom, all these sorts of things, um, Mm. quite expansive sort of themes. um, But but applicable to some very specific things. Yeah, and how do do they affect, you know, a person's beliefs and so it's, it's just like a form of inquiry but quite a sort of compassionate and that's what I'm getting. That's where I'm at at the moment. Just an openness to it and a curiosity to it, with it. And um, once I get a bit more, I'm going to say to people, you know, this is I'm. I want to try. I want to try some things with you. You know, once I get more into it. Um, but you know, supervision is about you know, what do you you know what do you want and what does this mean to you and what will be most helpful for you and. How does this relate to how you you know your values, your practice? Then you know, mm. it's it is a form of inquiry anyway. So yeah. So if time and money weren't an issue for you, yeah. where would you like to go to next? What yeah. where does your passion lie? Oh, I love that question. I would like to keep on working. Mm-hmm. I would like to. I feel I want to work a bit longer to get a comfortable retirement mm-hmm. um, full of travel and concerts <laughs> and walking tours. Yeah. Um, Is there any form of social work that you would love to try? Probably. Um, it's the remote area stuff I still feel I will get to. Um, maybe not sort of like for year-long contracts, but um, mm. to try and get a taste or something, you know, there's things I can I feel I can give um, but also learn and in in that space about but that's so to work with Aboriginal people in their own communities that's that's a goal I'm quite interested in palliative care work Mm -hmm. as well end-of-life stuff and and I don't want to give up the possibility of you know my therapeutic skills are still there and my listening, my language skills are still there. Um, I'd like to go to four days a week mm-hmm. and spend even, you know, nine day fortnight or, and have a day because I want to add piano, but also French, um, French mm-hmm. lessons. Um, that's the other goal, the other not goal I've got to become fluent okay. in French. 
Is there any type of social work that you're really not interested in? Yes. Um, I'm not interested in private practice anymore. We didn't talk about mm. private practice. Um, no. We sort of glossed over that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was a very it was a, a great experience, but it's not what I want. It's not how I want to practice. It, Do you think it's because of the isolation? Isolation is the main thing. Yeah. Um, I was always doing it at the end of something, you know, at the end of it, I would do half a day of teaching and then private practice. It would go into the evening. I, I was often so tired and hungry and, um, and it, this was exhausting really, you know, because you had to offer, I let some private practice say, well, these are my hours and you, you, if you want me enough, you'll come. But I never, I always offered after hours and some, and, Sometimes I would do two evenings a week mm. because people, couples, would want to come. Um, it was, it really honed and refined my therapy skills, but, and it wasn't really worth it for the, for the investment that I've had in my education. It mm. was, it was, yeah, I just, it wasn't, didn't, the sort of returns, and I feel like I wanted returns at this point in my life. I wanted, don't want to exhaust myself and then so that's why I, I want to come back into organizations there's all that and there's a bit more variety um, so I don't want to go back to private practice but I still want to work therapeutically with people um, I'm quite interested in aged care mm-hmm. um, I love working with the, the aged person themselves but also even but the families you know who are often my age I see um, yeah the their parents are now in their 80s and 90s and mum would have turned 80 in November which is young these days Mm. (laughs) but she died 20 years ago so I probably don't want to work in child protection Mm. drug and alcohol um, mental health although I you know I can work with when those present in a the physical health stuff is interesting and the, I don't mind the complexity all wrapped into one, you know. Sure, you'd get snippets of child protection or drug yeah, and alcohol wherever yeah, you go. Yeah. Given that you've worked in health settings for such a long time, what have you seen in terms of advancements within social work? I think I, I'm seeing more confidence in the social work role and social work identity and the contributions social workers can make mm. and the how the role is, you know, so important in, in, the team, in a team approach mm-hmm. to, um, to healthcare and how that gives me confidence and, and I teach others the confidence to say this is really important, you know, this, this lens, this, this perspective is really important and you need to listen because it's going to make your work better, you know. Mm-hmm. It's going to, if you give me time to do the work I need to do with the person and value it, it will, um, the person's going to do better. They're not going to be, you know, back in hospital straight away. They're not going to be causing grief to to people. Um, so do you find there's more respect and understanding of the social work role within health? Um, I think... There's more openness to it, and I, I don't know if it's me being, you know, getting a bit more gravitas yeah. because the younger doctors, you know, will come up to me. Oh, Paul, that's good. I really need. I wanted to know this, or can I ask you this? People are asking me things, and okay. uh, or I would just go up to say, "This is what I've done. This is my. I've been to see this person as team request. 
this is my assessment and mm. sometimes oh well it doesn't matter they've got to go and I say well this is a risk and and maybe to try and negotiate something and it's so arbitrary that we need the bed is you know mm. but they need the bed too you know being a bit more clear of working from my value base and and how it aligns with the organization's base I think that's given me the comp and I felt that much more strongly at St Vincent's than I did in the um, in the local health district land they have values and but they didn't inspire me or um, they didn't align so strongly with the social work values and the St Vincent's values they so align with mine they give they, so you can say this you know from a value of, of compassion from a value of justice mm. we need to do this mm. and we, we can step up to this and what do you see changing in the next say 5 10 20 years in this field it's hard to say there's there is this sort of frontier um, of amazing technologies and mm. um, but there's also there's still people who fall over, they fall over and they fall off things and they break bones and they get knocked off their bikes and so there's um, there's always these, there's still people who are going to just keep on breaking bones and yeah. um, there's going to, the people who we deal with, there's still going to be problem drinkers who, you know, mental health, drug, you know, so they're, they're, they're the ones that we're just going to be amongst. Um, we would like, I would like, and I'm starting to talk to others, there's gaps in services we identify and how to systematically collect some data on, mm-hmm. whether it's expansion of things like Tierney House, you know, or other sort of supported places that aren't aged care facilities that can manage difficult behaviours but still keep the person's dignity, they don't have to be drugged and they may be able to have a ciggy and a drink if that's what they that's what they want. Um, mm-hmm. How do you reconcile that knowledge that regardless of what you do and how well you work with someone, they're going to keep coming back? Sometimes I'm troubled, but most of the time I think this is, this is, a, it has an end point, you know, and I see, because I see them, I see them getting frailer mm. and more seriously injured and a longer stay. Um, I probably... But I think, oh, well, we've got to keep, we have a duty of care and mm. and hopefully, and these people are probably heading off the street into supported accommodation or something, um, even if they're underage. But then there's another lot of people who just give me a little bit of a, it's a bit of a burr um, in the, under the saddle um, <laughs> of people who feel that this this is free healthcare so just mm. give me give me give me give me and right. um and i deserve give me give me samaritan fund give me let me stay give me uh and better still using <laughs> drugs in the moments before they're being discharged um i go away to get somebody some clothes and an opal card and he said, oh, and what about that? You've also promised me that. And uh, Okay, well. And then come back and his girlfriend bought him a, a, a shot and he mm. can't stand up. And he's saying, oh, but you said you'd get me a... I said, 
but just a sense that it isn't it isn't a free it isn't a free, you know if somebody pays you know yeah. the, the community pays the taxpayer pays the choices made there mean we can't make choices there it's, so there's this um, that's sometimes and not just um, those that sort of actively drug using people but other people a sort of sense of well this is a hospital you should do this for me and um, I want you to fix you know all these other aspects of my life and mm-hmm. um, we and get cranky when you can't and you say well this is what I can offer you is that all you know it's um, and you know they can see us running around sweating you know mm-hmm. I've, I we're runners quite often because yeah. <laughs> you know we're, we're running and so feeling unappreciated it's or just not not me personally, but not appreciating the system and the care, and that we've stayed back late, that we've come in on call, or that um, not respecting the system because they just assume this is what everybody gets. But when you know that this is a world class, very good public health service that we mm-hmm. have um, compared to so much of the rest of the world. Yeah, you uh, wish they could see the bigger picture. Yeah. And it, it, all it does is just give me. I, I don't. I don't get a sore, a sore bar. <laughs> I just. It's just like. It's just a sort of a shake, a, a mental shake of the head, you know. Just, mm-hmm. you know. But then you just move on to the next, <laughs> the next thing, the next. Um, yeah. It, it, it just washes. It washes over. But you just think, people don't realise, you know, the amount of work that the costs foregone, you know. Um, mm-hmm. The take it for granted it doesn't change what we do but it just you you think and you don't need to be validated but it's just that people don't realize how good we have it it's more of this mm. you know this rich country you know sure. but um people are on they have pensions that are livable obviously not the benefits aren't but the pensions are livable you know to an extent mm. compared to there's subsidised, there's public health, you know, there's subsidised medicines, <laughs> there's free public health care. Um, yeah. I see it when um, people who aren't insured, overseas travellers who have an accident, and you see a bill for three days of care is $10,000. Yeah, wow. It becomes real. It's, you know, $10,000 is a lot of money for you and me, and mm-hmm. we're working people, and... Um, it's and you know hopefully they're insured if they're not it's but that doesn't matter you know just get on because you can the next you turn around and then there's something really another really good thing to happen and yeah so much that happens in a day that uh, what impact do you think technology will have in our future i'm excited by that i'd like to learn more about that um i've been given i've got a little um mac surface pro which, mm-hmm. um, which is again is a really. That's, but I feel quite paranoid about taking it onto the ward because it's like eighteen hundred dollars worth, yeah. and um, I, it fits in my little folio, mm-hmm. um, so I can do things. Um, I don't like taking it into, into the bed area of a, of a because I'm just so conscious of germs yeah. and. Um, yeah, you don't want to transfer it from one person to yeah, and so and there's there's lots so but so there's lots of workstations. Uh, it's um, 
But there are things we have to do with the patient at the bedside. So I usually take one of the nurse's workstations. Um, sometimes I use mine. Um, mm. uh, I think it, it does, it, knowledge is at our fingertips, you know. I can just, so I wonder if that place, if we just Google, press Google, say, what is the nearest blah, blah, uh, yeah. or what is and um, the medical condition and so what is a toe and well, yeah. I haven't looked that one up actually <laughs> T-O-E but that you can you can actually look things up and you've got you know Dr. Google and Dr. Wikipedia and um, so bits of information um, I think I can see it as well in um, people don't have to have huge huge surgeries you know huge incisions um yeah um all the worlds i the woods i work in is gastro surgery but there's a lot more laparoscopic laparoscopic which is more high tech but it's it reduces the recovery time as well yeah so it's um it they're, they're, yeah they're better quicker and it does mean people people think what do you mean i'm going home after five yeah, days yeah. I've just not said, quite prepared blah blah um there's still the importance of actual personal care, you know, actual mm. physical carers, um, that whatever, however much technology aids and speeds things up, and I think it does help us to see more people, um, the allocation, because I can bring that computer with me, um, I can just, to, to our morning huddles, mm. um, I can say, okay, this person hasn't been seen, um, can you take this, can you take this? Uh, Oh, we've got a directive. I'll just look that up. We we can get through a bit of information. Information is shared much more quickly and calendar. So that it's it makes. I think it makes us more productive. Yeah. And I think that's one of the differences. There's all stuff happening with genomes, and but I don't know much about it. But I think there is. You know, they again, St. Vincent's very much wanting research, bringing research into practice. Yeah, there's so many big research institutes on the campus. and So there's a constant environment of learning. Yeah, and I'd love to, but there's also the, the like the Plunkett Centre, you know, there's the Centres for Research in Ethics or, you know, Philosophy or... Um, mm. I like that the organisation is that interested in research and translational research and mm -hmm. all of that. I know that you love reading and you love yeah. researching, but is there anywhere particular that you would recommend people go if they're wanting to know a little bit more about health social work or various topics like the ones yeah. you've mentioned? Yeah. Well, the ASW scope of practice documents mm. are really good. They're only like eight or nine pages or something, but I get all of our students to read them and... Mm -hmm. um, because they're sort of like a, a, con a foundational document, I guess. Um, then I think it's a hospital placement is, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's a great way to, a health placement in, in your social work degrees or, or if not that, um, people haven't had a health experience in placement or in profession and wanting to get into a hospital experience, they have to, they have, they've had a, talk about how their skills might be transferable and mm -hmm. what you know what will help what sort of areas of knowledge of systems and and general knowledge how, what, what will how, 
I've had people ask me that. You know, they're coming from facts, for example, or something. And, um, and so how do my skills translate? Now, so I talk about assessment, assessment skills, the child protection, domestic violence, you know, those things, they're transferable, mm-hmm. but it's a different context where you're treating them. Um, knowledge of teams and teamwork, um, a knowledge of what a health journey looks like and the impact, uh, what adjustment to illness and adjustment to wellness means, all those sorts of things. You've got to look that up somewhere mm. and have a be able to articulate your understanding of it and mm-hmm. aging an understanding of the aging process and what that means grief and loss you know all of these things you would you get exposure to in other areas um, mental health drug and alcohol so they're transferable but if they can really shine in their assessment skills their conceptualization their analysis their reflective skills that helps um, but Often someone more junior who's been in a hospital, you can talk, you know, knows the services and all of that. Um, they can often sort of trump another person with more experience, but from an out, from an out. So trying to get an understanding of the context of it, it's just really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've given such a great overview of different types of social work in and outside of health. And Thank I'm you. so incredibly appreciative. And I think people are going to learn a lot. Thank you. I will get some uh, links as, as well so people can go off and do their own research yeah. and have a think about the types of things you've commented on. Yep. Um, but other than that, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, I think I guess having some interpersonal skills are, are, are so essential to, to hospital and health social work, I think. Being able to talk and listen, communicate, um, navigate um, mm. so while holding on to yourself and knowledge of systems and those sorts of things I think are really they're really important I guess yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's also highlighted I think that there is such diversity there is such capacity to build experience as you go and to really find where you fit yeah. and what you're passionate That's right. about yep Right. Yes. Well, we'll leave it at that. Okay. Thanks again, Paul, so much. Thank you, Yasmin. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to continue this discussion or ask anything of either myself or Paul, please visit my Anchor page at anchor.fm slash socialworkspotlight, or you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can email swspotlightpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please also let me know if there is a particular topic you'd like discussed, or if you or another person you know would like to be featured on the show. And finally, a quick thank you to anchor.fm for hosting this podcast. Next episode's guest is Chad, an experienced forensic social worker, three-time stage four cancer survivor, and tech founder of a mobile application that assists people with scheduling, encouraging self-care and reflection, and his work is assisting patients to legitimize medical cannabis as part of a holistic approach to their healthcare. I release a new episode every two weeks. Please subscribe to my podcast so you are notified whenever this next episode is available. See you next time.